All right, let's give it up for all the kids in here. Come on, give it up. I heard there's like 53 kids here this weekend. And uh, that means it's a children's conference. The parents have, were allowed to come. So I think the kids are heading next door now. Bye, kids. I need your parents. <laughs> And I need you not to be exposed to the things we're going to be talking about. <laughs> um, in the meantime, does everybody have one of these packets? Does everybody have one of these? If you don't have one, lift your hand. Everybody needs to have one of these. One per person. Everybody needs your own. Not one per couple, one per person. Everybody... Each of you needs your own. It's very important, and it's very important that you're sitting next to your spouse. No. Whoops, sorry about that. No, no empty seat between you and your spouse. All right. We're recording, right? All right, good. All right, as we begin tonight... I want to start by playing a game. The game is called, if my spouse was perfect, she would. I'll go first. If my spouse was perfect, she would wake up early in the morning and prepare my breakfast before I ever got up. And I would come downstairs and she would be standing next to the table wearing a traditional Korean dress with my breakfast on the table. And she would say, <laughs> Enjoy your breakfast. And after I finished my meal, I would go upstairs and take a shower. And when I'd come out, I'd find that my clothes would be freshly pressed and laid out for me and, and perfectly selected for what I need for the day. And I would get dressed and joyfully go to work. And I would come home at, at night and she would warmly welcome me at the door, and she'd have a scrumptious dinner waiting at the table, and then she would sit me down at the couch and say, you just sit here and watch TV. You're tired from your long day's work. I'm going to take care of the cleanup and the kids for you. And then after the kids went to bed, she would satisfy my every sexual desire joyfully and enthusiastically every single day. If my spouse was perfect. Now, does anybody here have a perfect spouse? <laughs> you know, all of us have in our minds and hearts kind of an ideal picture of what an ideal spouse would be. And th that word perfect, it, it kind of comes to mind a little too easily. If my wife was perfect, when we tend to think of what a perfect spouse would be, we tend to define perfection, the perfection of our spouse, as their ability to perfect our own happiness. I'm going to turn this off because it's a little bit of a distraction, and we don't need it anyway. In other words, what I'm actually after is personal perfect happiness. And my spouse is perfect to the degree that she is able to provide for me perfect happiness. 
And typically when we talk about the imperfections of our spouse, uh, we tend to talk about um, ways in which they fail to make us happy. Like, I really wish my husband would clean up more. I really wish my wife would cook more. I really wish, I really wish, I really wish. And we tend to fill in the blanks with components of our own happiness. And the problem is that we have misdefined the word perfection. And because we, we have misdefined the word perfection because we have misunderstood the purpose of marriage. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about the purpose of marriage, why do we get married? What is the purpose of marriage from a divine perspective? We must make a distinction between the agenda of your conscious mind and the agenda of your unconscious mind. Remember before you were married, you wrote down a list of what you were looking for in your spouse, right? Like if people ask you, what are you looking for in a woman? You, you, you had a whole list, didn't you? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a woman. And you might have pretended to be humble and be like, oh, no, I just, whatever the Lord. But, you, no, in your mind, you had a list. Like you had a whole list of stuff. How many here married the person on that list? Anybody. Like this, this was the person I wrote out. Like, I wrote this person down on paper, and I married that. No, you didn't. You didn't marry that person. The person you ended up married was not the person on your list. And it was not the person on your list because when somebody asked you, what are you looking for in a spouse, you gave them an answer that corresponded to the agenda of your conscious mind. But the person you actually fell in love with and married was not chosen by your conscious mind, but was chosen by your subconscious mind. Meaning, did you look at someone and just decide, I think I'll fall in love with you. You meet my qualifications. Or did you just fall in love? Like your subconscious mind does not ask your permission before you fall in love. You find yourself in love, and then you figure out later how much of that list you actually get. (laughs) Because the agenda of your conscious mind is to decrease your pain and increase your pleasure. And so the list that you wrote out of what you were looking for in a spouse was a person who would decrease your pain and increase your pleasure. Everything on that list is designed to decrease your pain and increase your pleasure. The one thing that you did not write on that list is that you desired to marry a crazy person. But you did end up marrying a crazy person, didn't you? (laughs) So the question is, why did you fall in love with the person you fell in love with? When you fall in love, why do you fall in love? You ever find yourself asking that question? Why did I even like this person? Like, how, did, how was it possible for me to fall in love with this person? They're nothing like what I was looking for. I mean, if you were to ask my wife what her list was before we started dating, a Korean man who was older than her, who was skinny, who had hair on his head, and who had no hair on his body. And what am I? An African-American man who is younger than her, and chubby, with no hair on my head, and lots of hair on my body. (laughs) Like, 
She got nothing on her list. The only thing on her list she got was she wanted to marry a preacher. And that's all she got. Like, just close your eyes and listen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Some, sometimes we're home, she's like, just start preaching. I just need you to preach. I need you to preach right now. I need to remember why. <laughs> I fell in love with you. It's because your subconscious mind was looking for something completely different. Now, before we get to that, the great problem in our culture is that we have defined marriage according to the concept of happiness. Yeah. So when somebody that you just met asks you about your marriage, or, or even one of your friends is asking you about your marriage, what's the question they always ask? What's the assessment tool that we use? Are you happy? Mm-hmm. Don't they say that? Are you happy? Right? Even people you just met will ask you that. You married? Yeah. How long have you been married? 16 years. Are you happy? And that question turns the state of your marriage into a black and white answer. Either I'm happy or I'm unhappy. And we define happiness as experiences of pleasure. So either we're having pleasurable experiences and we're happy, or we're having unpleasurable experiences and we're unhappy. The worst thing your marriage can be is unhappy. I want to blow up that whole paradigm. If there's anything we want to do this weekend is we want to blow up that whole paradigm. The question is not whether or not you're happy. The question is whether or not you're healthy. You can have a healthy marriage that becomes happy. Happiness does not necessarily produce health, but health necessarily produces happiness. The point we're making is that if you focus on building a healthy marriage, you will have a happy marriage. But if you focus on building a happy marriage, you may or may not have a healthy marriage. And in actuality, your pursuit of happiness can get in the way of the cultivation of health. The things necessary for having a healthy marriage might elude you because you're so busy trying to be happy. And when you think about what you need to have a happy marriage, both of you could actually take out a pen and paper and write out a list right now. And you could say, you know what? I think what I need to have a happy marriage, all the men in the room would write, I need more sex. And the women in the room would write, "Um, I need more massages or more help around the house. No, trick help. This is your house too. You know what I mean? I need partnership around the house. Like, this is our house, not my house that you help me with. (laughs) Right? We could all write down, if you would just do these things, we would be more happy. But doing those things is not necessarily more healthy. If you don't get to the bottom of what's underneath those things, if there's not enough sex in your marriage, you have to ask the question, why? What is underneath it? The, the goal is not just to go right there and try to just add more of that. The goal is to get underneath it and figure out what do we need to work through in order to produce a healthier relationship in this way. Yeah. And so if we, if we focus on health, we can end up achieving happiness. But if we're focused on happiness, we're constantly disillusioned when we're not happy. Yeah. And actually what we're going to see in a few moments is that Sometimes in order to be healthy, you have to sacrifice your happiness. In other words, you can, you can be in a temporary state that's not happy at all, but is very healthy. Yeah. 
and is very necessary for producing long-term happiness in your marriage. Now, a few foundational principles we want to lay out. First of all, when you fell in love with your spouse, you fell in love with your spouse subconsciously because you found someone who was wounded at the same stage of development as you were, yet probably responded to that in a different way. That is, we have similar woundedness but differing defenses. Similar woundedness but differing defenses. Now, let me, let me explain how that worked out between me and Sonny. I remember when I first saw Sonny, not the first time I saw her with my eyes, but the first time when I, I, I noticed her. This was in the fall of 1994. We were both students at uh, Patton University in Oakland, California, which was a Bible college at the time. And I remember seeing her, and I remember just being, like, struck by her because not only was she beautiful, but she was more than beautiful. She was confident. She was confident. (laughs) She was independent, and she didn't need anybody. She had this look on her face like, I don't need you to notice me. I am happy all by myself, but yet not in an antisocial kind of way. You know what I mean? She didn't have an attitude. She was very vibrant and alive and and very warm and and loving to everyone around her, but at the same time very like, but I don't need you though. Like you don't have to look at me. I'm I'm good. I don't need nobody. And I was like over I was just like, "Man, she is so confident and so Man, she's amazing. And I remember that first time she was doing, uh, she was singing a song in chapel. And they said, and now Sister Sunny is going to come and sing us a song. And she said, I just want to sing this song to Jesus. And she closed her eyes and sang, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. She didn't sing bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. It was just, she was singing a worship. It was like this woman was singing to Jesus, not to anybody else. And so she didn't care if, what, she, what you thought of her voice, she just was singing to Jesus. And I was like, man, she is awesome. Like, she is beautiful. She is so independent. She is so confident. And she doesn't need nobody until we started dating. <laughs> and then I discovered that it was all a lie. <laughs> because suddenly she needed me for everything. (laughs) She turned into the most needy person in the whole entire world. Now, if she had the microphone right now, she would tell you a similar story. When she saw me, now not in 1994, she wasn't looking at me that way in 1994, but the one thing she always knew about me was that I was so confident and I was so charismatic and I was so secure and I was so, I was just so gangster until we started dating. And then I became the most insecure, emotionally needy, clingy, fearful little boy that she had ever met. And what we discovered over time is that both of us were wounded in the same way. We both had this rejection, abandonment wound. The only difference was we responded to that wound in opposite ways. And let me tell you how that works. There's a stretch of trees along the 17-mile drive in Monterey, California, where the, they're right on the coast, right on the water, and the wind has blowed on, on one side of those trees for so many years that all the trees are withered. So they're growing. So the coast is here. The wind's blowing this way, and all the trees are withered on one side, but they flourish on the other side. 
So all the trees look like this. This is what every human being that you see looks like. There's a side of you that has been so beaten down that you're withered on that side. But there's another side of you where you flourish. And this side of you where you have flourished, this is what everybody sees. So everybody sees you like this. And you, you keep the other side hidden. You don't see that side. Right? And you, you're walking around and you're looking around. And before you get married, you're looking around and you're just like, oh, she's nice. Oh, she's nice. But, whoa, look at her. Now do your, you know. No, sit down. Yeah, 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 okay. I was like, wow. Wow, look at her. Stand up. Wow, look at her. Wow, come stand next to me over here. Look at this. Like, she's flourishing where I'm withered. And I'm flourishing where she withered. We make a great pair. We make a great team. We used to talk this way in college. You know what would be awesome? If we did ministry together, I'd be the preacher and you would be the administrator. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And we do ministry and it'd be awesome because all we're seeing is I'm flourishing here and then, and then we get together and we turn toward one another and we embrace you complete me. <laughs> but one day she says to me, could you, could you do me a favor? Sure, anything. I love you so much. I'll do anything for you. Well, I need you to embrace me with two hands. I need you to embrace me with the other hand. And at first I'm like, well, that's not possible. I mean, you knew when I got married that I was withered over here. Like, when you married me, I was like this. You know I can't embrace you with this hand. She says, well, I need you to embrace me with that hand. It's like, okay, let's, I'll give it a try. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> Is that good enough? No, no, that's not good enough. Okay, I'll keep trying. <laughs> Is that good enough? No, 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 I'll keep trying. And this is over years and years and years. In between, a lot of fights. <laughs> and a lot of giving up. Forget it. You know I can't, I can't hug you with this hand. You know this hand is wounded. Okay, I'll try again. Okay, I'll try again. And over the years of fighting and striving and trying and trying, all of a sudden, ah, this hand breaks free. And whoa, look at that. I can hug you with both hands. Look at that. I'm free. But then all of a sudden I realize... That, str that struggling to love her in a deeper way has actually set me free in a deeper way. Meaning that the path to my own healing was laid out for me by the needs of my spouse. Specifically, the needs that I do not feel I can meet. And you know that there are needs that you do not feel that you can meet because they feel unreasonable to you. They feel like they come from a place of misunderstanding. You feel judged by those needs. You feel like, how come you're so needy? If you feel that about your spouse, all you're sensing is that place where you're withered. And your spouse is asking and even demanding that you love them with your withered hand. And if both of us struggle to break free in the places where we're withered, the end result is not just that we love one another better, but that we're both two whole individuals. 
which means that the process of marriage leads to maturity and health. There's this concept that love produces healthy relationships. It's actually the other way around. Healthy relationships produce love. There's the idea that love is born of relationships. No, it's the other way around. Um, there's, There's the idea that relationships are born of love. No, love is born of relationships. You see that one of the big problems is we look at kind of this infant love, this ignorant love, this stupid love, you know, kids where they fall in love, that where they're first in love, and we go, oh, that's so awesome. Oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, and we've been married for 15, 20 years, and we go, don't you wish we could be like that again? No, you don't wish you could be like that. That's, that's retarded love. That's, that's like ignorant love. That's, that's, you know, that's infantile love. It's all about drugs. That's, that's what's going on in their brain. It's this cocktail of drugs. that's going. You can't have those drugs anymore after you've been married for 20 years. They, haven't, they don't even know each other yet. Yeah. The power struggle hasn't even begun yet. That's, the goal is not infantile love. And we tend to put that on a pedestal and say, I wish we could go back and have all of the feelings we had when we first fell in love. <laughs> You weren't even in love yet. You were infatuated with one another. Do you know what infatuation is? Infatuation is a process of idealization by which you transfer subconsciously all of your unmet needs to another person. You were infatuated with that person. You know why you felt that way about that person? Because subconsciously you believed that they would solve all of your problems, meet all of your needs, and cover all of your wounds. And that's why you had that infatuation. And you know why you don't feel that anymore? Not because you're not in love anymore, but because you realize that that was all an illusion. (laughs) That person has failed over and over again over years and years to meet all your needs. And here's the point I'm making. If I had the perfect wife, quote unquote, that I talked about at the beginning of this talk, you know, the, the woman in a humbuck who would make my breakfast and rub my head while I ate. and You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff that I described, that ridiculous picture, that would be the worst possible situation for me as a human being. Because I say, well, she's the perfect wife. No, she's not. Do you know what she does for me by meeting all of my needs? You know what she does? Yes. She prevents me from ever having to deal with my wounds and prevents me from ever having to mature and become fully a man. That picture of a wife is actually a glorified mother. What I really wanted was mommy with benefits, which is really sick, isn't it? And... and (laughs) (laughs) and that picture of what marriage is supposed to look like is actually pretty sick you know what marriage is supposed to look like there's supposed to be some arguments I do premarital all the time I've done about 100 weddings in the last 14 or 15 years I know that's nothing compared to Pastor Q. He, you know, in the last 60, 70 years, he's done like, <laughs> like, like 3,000 weddings at least. <laughs> but 
I'm, I'm doing premarital with a couple. But whenever I, you, know, you know what's the scariest thing for me? When I do premarital with a couple that doesn't fight. Yeah. I'm not worried about the couple that fights. You know why I'm not worried about the couple that fights? Because both of them are fully convinced that all of them is supposed to be in the relationship. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I, I need to be all in this relationship, which means I, I can't be hiding my feelings, pretending I don't feel stuff, not saying what's on my mind. Marriage becomes this political struggle, and politics is when you change what you say based on who's in the room. You have a political marriage if you look at your husband and go, okay, honey, all right, we're going to do that. And then you call your girlfriend and say, this man is off the hook. I don't know what's wrong with this brother. I said yes just to get him off my back. That's politics. You need to be able to look at your husband and say, no, we're not doing that. Does that sound disrespectful? You know what? Sometimes it will be. But if my wife had never been fully herself with me, even when being fully herself was in conflict with me being fully myself, I would never have the opportunity to grow up. I would never deal with my deep stuff because your subconscious mind chose your spouse in order to provide you with more opportunities to deal with your unresolved childhood trauma. Did you get that? That's why the pain that you feel from your spouse is so much like the pain that you felt with your mom or your dad, your primary caretaker. Subconsciously, you knew that. And that's why you married that person. So that when in interactions with my wife, she recreates for me the pain from my past, she's doing exactly what she's supposed to do. That's the purpose of our marriage. Why? Because I get to go back and resolve it now in relationship with one who is committed to me for life. Stuff that I couldn't resolve when I was a five-year-old boy, I get to resolve as a 41-year-old man. And I get to heal. And I get to grow up. If we do it right. All right? Now, I define a healthy marriage as a marriage that's characterized by what I call good pleasure. And that's what I've called this process, good pleasure. Good pleasure is a combination of two components. Number one, good. And number two, pleasure. <laughs> Let's get the slide up if we can. All right. First of all, we must understand that as biological organisms, just the first one, good. As biological organisms, we have an inherent, an innate desire to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure, right? We share this with every member of the animal kingdom. Ple uh, pain, bad. Pleasure, good, right? So we just naturally desire to avoid pain to pursue pleasure. We've already defined this as the agenda of the conscious mind. However, as human beings, we also have a second drive that distinguishes us from the members of the animal kingdom, and that is the drive to avoid evil and to pursue good. So as human beings, we believe two things. Number one, pain bad, pleasure good. Number two, evil bad, good, good right? So we want good and we want pleasure. Go on to the next. We want good and we want pleasure. The good, stay there. However, what we find, well, first of all, good pleasure, I define good pleasure one more 
as enjoyment. And what I mean by enjoyment, good pleasure is the state of mature love in which the members of a marital relationship have learned how to be emotionally connected through the good stuff. That's good pleasure. Good pleasure is when what you're enjoying with one another is pleasurable and it's good at the same time. And when I say good, uh, I mean something very specific. Now, on our wedding day, the day we got married, uh, my best man and I went by the hotel where Sonny and I spent our wedding night together and dropped off our bags because we were leaving for our honeymoon the next morning. And as we set our bags down, I saw the big screen TV and I just turned it on. The movie Nuremberg was on and Alec Baldwin in this movie was sitting with um, another member of the cast. I can't remember what his name was. Um, but as soon as I turned it on, it was about this trial of these Nazi war criminals. And this man who had been observing them, he was a, a psychologist, he'd been observing these Nazi war criminals. And he's giving his report to Alec Baldwin and he says, I have been reflecting on the nature of evil and I have concluded that evil is the absence of empathy. And that pierced me like a sword. Evil is the absence of empathy. Because in order to kill another human being, you have to have zero empathy for them. The only thing that prevents us from, excuse me, from harming another being is empathy. And empathy is the ability to take the feelings of another into yourself. Guys, you know when you watch a movie and a guy gets kicked in the balls or falls down and hurts his balls and, and you just go, ooh. Every guy in the theater goes, ooh. That's called empathy. <laughs> like, that didn't happen to you, but you still go, ooh. Why? Because you see it and you're feeling it. Right? Empathy happens naturally when you are emotionally connected to another human being. And if I can remain emotionally connected to my wife, I can never intentionally hurt her. Now, what happens when we get in big arguments and fights, and if, let's say, we were to yell at each other and call each other names, and then afterwards we'd say, I didn't mean what I said, but that's a lie. Because you meant you exactly, you meant, you meant exactly what you said. You meant every word of it at the time you said it. You don't mean it now because you've become a human being again. But at that moment, you meant it because you had become an animal. It is scientifically proven that when your heart rate exceeds 96 beats per minute, your prefrontal cortex shuts down. Your limbic system heats up, and you become physiologically incapable of empathy. Meaning, the higher the level of anxiety, the lower the level of empathy. Which means that when, you, when your anxiety level is high and you are having an argument with your spouse, it is not a conversation. It is not a dialogue. You are no longer listening to understand. You are listening to refute. The whole time you're listening to what your spouse is saying, in your head you're thinking, I'm going to pick this apart and I'm going to destroy you. You are completely focused on killing your spouse with your words. And so, evil is defined as anxiety. And good is defined as as empathy. And the context, the concept is the lower the anxiety, the higher the empathy. The higher the empathy, the lower the anxiety. You cannot have good pleasure when you're in the realm of anxiety. 
you must find a way to ward off the anxiety so that you can come back to your humanity. And now you're living in the realm of good. Now, good pleasure is where we all want to live. If I were to ask you a question, how many couples live in this realm of good pleasure? Like this is their normal state. How many couples would you say live there? Like what percentage of couples live there? Nationwide. Hmm? 5%? That's actually not a bad guess. A nationwide survey asked a single question. Are you living in your ideal marriage? Is your marriage the ideal? Only 4% say yes. So 4% of couples live there in the realm of good pleasure. Everybody else lives outside of that realm and may visit it from time to time. We're trying to get in there and stay in there, but we tend to get in there for a moment and then we come out. And often we're baffled when we come out. We're like, how did, I, how did we get out? How did we get in? Like, that was so good, but it only lasted 10 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, man, we had a really good day last month on a Thursday, I think it was. <laughs> you know, like, how, why did we have such a good day? What was so good about it? How can we do that again? And so often the answer eludes us, completely eludes us, because we don't know how we got in there, and we don't know how we got out. And once we got out, we don't know where we went. Well, we had to go to one of these other three quadrants, okay? So there's good pleasure, which is enjoyment, which is the joy of remaining emotionally connected through the good stuff. And, and good pleasure is when the pleasure that we would choose just happens to be good. If we can have good and pleasure at the same time. Good pleasure, by the way, is mutually beneficial. It's any type of pleasure that's mutually beneficial. Good pleasure is not just when I pleasure my wife and my wife pleasures me. Good pleasure is when I am pleasured by my wife's pleasure and my wife is pleasured by my pleasure. Good pleasure is when she is benefited by watching me receive pleasure and I am benefited by watching her receive pleasure. That's good pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure that builds our intimacy, builds our union, binds us together. Okay, that's good pleasure. However, oftentimes, every day, we often have to choose between good and pleasure. We can't always have them both. And there's no marriage in the world that can always have them both, 100% of the time. In every marriage, there's a choice to be made every day. Do I want good or do I want pleasure? And if we choose pleasure and leave out the good, that puts us in the next realm called, go ahead, evil pleasure. Evil pleasure. (laughs) Evil pleasure is the pleasure of disconnecting through the tough stuff. So good pleasure is the pleasure of remaining emotionally connected through the good stuff. Evil pleasure is the pleasure of disconnecting through the tough stuff. I call this indulgence, right? So good pleasure is enjoyment. Evil pleasure is indulgence. Now, can somebody think of one example of what evil pleasure would be in marriage? Okay, there's, there's an extreme example, but it's an example nonetheless. This is probably the prime example. Adultery, right? Adultery is a pleasure, right? Why do we commit adultery? We would commit adultery because we want pleasure. But it's evil because I have to completely disconnect from my wife in order to enjoy that pleasure. 
and evil pleasure is at the expense of the other. Good pleasure is for the benefit of the other. They're both pleasurable. But one is good and the other is evil because one builds up the marriage by building up the other. And the other breaks down the marriage by breaking down the other. Evil pleasure is any pleasure that I enjoy that tears my wife down. Any pleasure that I enjoy despite my spouse. Getting the last word in. There's a good one. <laughs> Getting the last word in in the argument. Calling each other a name. Calling your spouse a name. Why would you call your spouse a name? Because it felt good. And you might lie later and say, no, that didn't feel good. Well, then what did you say it for? There had to be a payoff. <laughs> you can't tell me that you hurt your spouse and there was no payoff for you. You anticipated, you savored the, 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 the experience of biting your spouse with a name, right? How about uh, in the financial realm, um, taking out a credit card without telling your spouse? Right? Having a secret financial life. That's an evil pleasure. Why? Because you want this or that. But it tears down your spouse, Right now, by the way, uh, can I just say by way of confession, I've done a lot of these evil pleasures over the years and I'm not saying this because I do all this stuff perfectly. Okay. But, um, we got to understand these things. Evil pleasure is pleasure that one party experiences to the detriment of the other. Now, John Gottman uh, who wrote a book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. He did 20 years of clinical research on marriage. He had this laboratory. He called it the Love Lab. It was basically an, an apartment or a condo, and uh, he would have married couples come and just spend a week in there, and he's watching you in all the you know, family-friendly rooms, and, and he had uh, you know, patches on you so he knows when you're angry and when you're sad and all of that. And he's just observing you for, for, for two, three days, and then you go on about your business, and then he follows you for 20 years. And the goal, what he's looking for is if he could discover the pattern of what causes divorce. And he found some very clear patterns. After 20 years of clinical research, he wrote a book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. And what he discovered is that all you have to do is avoid what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. Criticism, contempt stonewalling, and defensiveness. Criticism is you, 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 always, you, never. You, always, you, never. That's criticism. You, 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 you. It's you. That's criticism. Uh, contempt. Contempt is, it's any way that you communicate to your spouse, you disgust me. In translation, I'm so much bigger than you, and you're so much smaller than me. I can't believe I have to deal with you. You're a peon compared to me. And it can be anything as small as, <sighs> right? I didn't mean that, you know. <laughs> and John Gottman, and, and so contempt is belittling, ways of belittling your partner. What's stonewalling? Stonewalling is my wife comes in, she's like, Baby, 
how many times did I have to tell you about these crumbs on the counter? And I'm just... <laughs> or I just keep watching TV. Translation, nothing you say has any effect on me. Talk to the hand. And then defensiveness. Defensiveness is the act of never taking responsibility for anything, but always explaining everything away. Nothing is ever my fault. Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. And by the way, which one do you think is the worst? John Gottman's research showed that actually one of them in particular is the worst. Which one do you think it is? You say stonewalling. You say contempt. Who else? Criticism, criticism, okay, defensiveness. It's contempt. (laughs) Contempt is the most toxic. All four of these are evil pleasures. An evil pleasure creates evil pain. Next one. Evil pain is the result of evil pleasure. Evil pleasure is active evil. Evil pain is passive. Meaning evil pleasure is the, is the pain that I inflict upon my spouse. Evil, so it was a pleasure for me because I criticized, but it's an evil pain for her because she is criticized. It's a pleasure for me because I showed her contempt. It's a pain for her because she feels belittled. So evil pleasure creates evil pain, which is what I call injury. Okay? And evil pleasure and evil pain are a cycle. So I criticize her. She feels criticized. So she shows me contempt, and I feel belittled. So I defend myself, and she feels invalidated. So she criticizes me, and I stonewall. Does that make sense? And so it's this dance. What tends to happen is we get out of the realm of good pleasure and we come down into the realm of evil and we just bounce back and forth here in this realm of evil pleasure, evil pain, evil pleasure, evil pain. And this is often what an argument looks like between two, two, a, a, a married couple, a husband and a wife. An argument is oftentimes, an argument is not solving anything. It's just a cyclical infliction of evil pain upon one another. You criticize me, I feel criticized, so I'm defensive, you feel invalidated, so you show me contempt, I feel belittled, so I stonewall you, you feel ignored, so you criticize me, I feel criticized, so I, you get it. And it just keeps going, boom, 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 boom. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get back here to good pleasure. Both of us want to get back here to good pleasure. But we don't know what the heck we're doing. Nothing we're doing down here is going to get us back to good pleasure. The thing we need to understand is that if I choose evil pleasure, there's only one place it leads. Go ahead, hit it. Only one place evil pleasure leads. It leads to evil pain. And there's only one place... If, if an evil pain, now once I receive evil pain, I have a choice. If I choose evil pleasure, it provides her with evil pain. It produces evil pain in her. But once she hits the place of evil pain, she has a choice. She can either 
bounce back over to evil pleasure and hit me back. Or she could bounce up. But before that, hit it again. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so evil pleasure produces evil pain. Hit it again. There's only one way out of this loop. Either I have to stop before I criticize again and choose good pain. Or, and, and, and in order to do that, it takes discipline. Hit it again. In other words, the only way out of here is discipline. Discipline is when I make a decision, that's it, no more evil pleasure for me. Saying that to my wife is not right. Doing that to my wife is not right. And I've justified it for all these years. I've tried to make it her fault. But it's not about fault anymore. Now it's about the fact that what I'm doing is not right and is not producing anything good in our relationship. I've got to stop and I've got to discipline myself. And often disciplining myself here means simply shut up. Just don't say it. Or, if I'm on the receiving end, I'm not going to respond. Hit it again. And that too is discipline. I'm not going to take the evil pleasure of trying to have the last word. Because that's often what an argument is. It's just two people who each think they need to have the last word. And both are trying to have the last word. And so it just stretches on for hours and hours. When Sonny and I first got married, we used to have these fights that would last like four days. Like we'd argue for two, three hours, and then we would storm off. And then we'd come back two, three hours later and argue for two, three hours, and then we would storm off. Then we'd come back late at night, and we'd argue for an hour, and then we'd storm off. And, and you know, one of us would sleep in the living room, the other would sleep on the couch. We'd wake up the next morning and do the thing all over again. Sonny and I learned how to help couples because we needed help. That's the truth. First year of our marriage was hell. Second year might, might have been a little higher level of hell, but it was still hell. <laughs> Third year might have been purgatory. <laughs> we made it to the earth sometime during year four. And then we started climbing Jacob's ladder. And sometimes we get knocked down that ladder and we fall back down to purgatory. Or we might even spend a few minutes in hell again. But we have to get up and keep climbing. Good pain is the pain of remaining emotionally connected through the tough stuff. Here's, here's good pain. Good pain is, you are hurting me right now, but I will not disconnect my heart from you. That's good pain. You don't understand me. You have no compassion for me right now. You may be accusing me of things that I, that's not fair. You're refusing to love me in ways that I rightfully should be loved by you. You've done things to me that are completely unfair but I will not leave you. I will not disconnect my heart. 
You know what happens here? It's a little miniature divorce. Just had a little mini divorce here. You know what happens here? We remember our vows. For better or for worse, that's good pain. For richer or for poorer, that's good pain. In sickness and in health, when we make our vows, do you know what we're actually vowing to one another? That we'll never go down here. We're actually vowing to stay up here. In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. It's either going to be good pain or good pleasure, but never evil pleasure and evil pain. That's literally what we're vowing. What is good pain? Somebody give me an example of what good pain would be. Admitting you're wrong. There's a good one. You know what? This was my fault. So hard sometimes, isn't it? What else? Confessing. Hmm? Confessing. Confessing your faults. Confessing your sins. You know what? I sinned against you in this way. What else? Those are relatively easy when it's clear cut. Right? Like when I'm clearly wrong, it's easy to say, it was me. <laughs> I was wrong. But what about, what about when they did something wrong too, but they're not seeing what they did? Do you know what good pain requires? Good pain requires that I make a decision to be responsible for my own walk with God. And my own process. This is the key. If you get this in your head. The purpose of your spouse is not to make you happy. Your spouse can never be responsible for your happiness. Ultimately. And your spouse cannot be responsible for your maturity. The only thing I can be responsible for is me. And so I could sit around thinking about what she's not doing or what she doesn't realize. How come she hasn't said? It's completely unfruitful. That in and of itself is an evil pleasure. And if I think that way, it's going to keep me out of the realm of good pain. Good pain is simply acknowledging what I did. And yes, communicating clearly what I feel and what I experience, maybe even making some behavior modification requests, but not ever making demands, accusations, or ultimatums. Well, in some cases, there does need to be an ultimatum. Don't get me wrong. I'm making a general statement here that in order to go to the realm of good pain, I've got to stop thinking about what the other did to what she did to me. And I have to stop and say, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to Benjamin? 
What does God want Benjamin to get a hold of? And how can Benjamin respond? And that simply means I have to stop and I have to reflect. I have to listen. John Gottman, why marriages succeed or fail. He says two things. Number one, avoid the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. Number two, always maintain a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions. They've shown neurologically that positive experiences do not stick to the brain. The brain is like Teflon when it comes to good, good stuff. You have a really positive experience and the brain goes, that was great, let's get rid of that. And that's why your spouse doesn't remember half the good stuff you do for them. <laughs> Second thing, negative experiences stick to the brain like tar. When you have a negative experience, the brain goes, we're going to keep that and we're going to hold it forever. <laughs> we're going to never forget this. And so John Gottman says, because the brain functions that way, in order to move back into the realm of good pleasure, we've got to maintain a five-to-one ratio of positive-to-negative interactions. But he says, you must maintain five-to-one positive-to-negative interactions in the midst of conflict, not outside of conflict. Meaning, you can't get in a big fight, call each other every name in the book, and then go, okay, now let's go to Starbucks and have coffee together. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, oh, it's so great. That's fine. But putting those five positives in the midst of the conflict is what's important. And what are those five positives? Things like, I see your point there. That's a good pain. Ah, I finally hear you. This is what you've been trying to say, isn't it? Good pain. You know what? Here's what I can own. Good pain. I hear you saying this. Hmm? Physical touch. Reaching out and touching and taking your partner's hand, your spouse's hand. That's a good pain sometimes because I don't feel like it. Well, good. Do what you don't feel like. One of the primary skills, my wife will talk more about this later probably, but in every level of human development, there are lessons to, that you have to learn, things that you have to learn, and skills that you have to acquire. And one of the primary skills of childhood, the childhood stage, is to do things that you don't like to do. I don't feel like touching your hand. Well, grow up. <laughs> you have to do some things that you don't want to do. That's called good, good pain. And give me the next one. The only way back into good pleasure is from the realm of good pain. We can never go directly back to good pleasure from evil pleasure or evil pain. We've got to go up to this realm of good pain and hang out there for a while. That's the only way back into the realm of good pleasure. Hit it again. And just as it takes discipline to get to good pain from evil pleasure or evil pain, it takes intention to get to good pleasure from good pain. And this is the key. This is really the heartbeat of it. What do I mean by intention? You know, you hear, especially women like to say this. If I had to tell him, it doesn't count. <laughs> he should know. If he loved me, he would know. But if I have to tell him, 
it doesn't count because he doesn't love me. That's also childhood skills. Right. For what you want. Yep. What do we teach our children? Use your words. <laughs> but what we're, liter- what we're literally saying when we say, if I had to tell them it doesn't count, what we're literally saying is that feels too, it doesn't feel natural. And there's this idea that good relational habits in marriage are a natural consequence of love. If he loved me, he would do it. Meaning, if we have this thing called love, we'll naturally have these good habits. And no, it's the other way around. Love is born of good habits. Good habits are not born of love. Meaning, it takes intention. You've got to do some stuff that's unnatural. And, you know, whenever we do these these workshops and seminars and conferences, there's some exercises we got to do that are going to feel unnatural. And I remember when Sonny and I first did this, I didn't want to do it, honestly, because I'm an ENFP. I like things spontaneous. I like, I like to just on the fly. I like to just figure it out, extemporaneous, and you're giving me a script, and I've got to do this thing, and I've got to, I've got to do it. It feels so unnatural. Yes, you don't ever, it, you're not going to naturally make your way back into here. It takes intention and discipline. Yeah. Meaning, any two fools can fall in love. But marriage is for grown folks. Which means in order to, to do marriage right, we've got to grow up. And growing up means we've got to learn how to do the work. Marriage falls apart because we're not happy anymore. When I hear we're not happy anymore, the translation is we have not been willing to do the work of hanging out in good pain and creating healthy habits that would take us back to good pleasure. That's what we're not happy anymore means. It means our disciplineless pattern of interactions has not of, its, of a natural consequence brought us into the realm of good pleasure like we thought they would. And I'm simply saying to you, they never will. Time is not the great healer. Time plus the right steps is the great healer. If you were to take a knife and stab it into my arm and then pull it out and blood was just spurting everywhere and you walked away and said, oh, well, time is the great healer. Just sit there until you feel better. I would sit there until I bled to death. Yes, in time it will heal if I take the steps of getting that thing stitched up and keeping it clean. And all of us got married because we are bleeding from the head. All of us have head wounds. We've got trauma wounds that go all the way back to childhood. And time with your spouse is not going to heal those wounds. We've got to learn how to stitch one another up, how to keep our wounds clean, and how to walk with one another toward healing. And I'll end with this story. Do you have anything you wanted to share? Okay. I'll end with this story, and then I'm just going to hand this over to my wife, and whatever she does is going to be great. (laughs) 
she reminded me yesterday of um, when she and I got in a big argument over the crumbs that I left on the counter. And that was a recurring situation where I'd be in a hurry in the morning and I'd make a bagel and I would leave bagel crumbs all over the counter and then I would leave. And uh, I'd come home and it would not be a happy reunion. And I remember one particular night I came home and I walked in the door and I was so happy and I had just, I was about to say, hey baby, she goes, how many times do I have to tell you to wipe the crumbs off the counter? She's all, look, how hard is this? Look. <laughs> it took less than one second, <laughs> right? And in my head, I'm thinking, what's she making such a big deal about the crumbs for? So I was like, my bad. And I just went into full shutdown. She's like, come to the table. And I went and sat at the table, and she had made me my favorite meal. She had made this Korean chicken, you know, barbecue chicken, Korean barbecue chicken, which is my favorite meal. But we ate it in silence. <laughs> and the whole time I'm thinking, dang, she's not going to talk to me for the rest of the night because of the crumbs? She's that mad about the crumbs? What I didn't realize was inside she's thinking, He's not going to talk to me for the rest of the night because I asked him not to leave crumbs on the counter? Both of us are thinking the other is making a big deal about the situation. Meaning, I think she's mad at me. She thinks I'm mad at her. And in the, the meantime, we're just eating our bread in silence. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's like, why is there crumbs on my, my rice? <laughs> and so we didn't talk for the rest of the evening. About 11 p.m., we went to bed. We're laying in bed with our backs to one another. And I'm seething inside. I'm just getting more and more angry as the night is progressing. And finally, I thought, you know what? I'm going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> this is not right. I'm going to say something. But then I had a thought. What do I want? It's a good thought. What do I actually want? And then I thought, I want my wife to say nice things to me. And then I thought, what am I about to do? I'm about to yell at my wife. <laughs> Is that going to give me what I want? No, probably not. Matter of fact, definitely not. What could I do to get what I want? How about if I ask my wife to say nice things to me? And then I said to my wife, can we do admiration and appreciation? It's an exercise we do. And she turned around and smiled and said, yeah, you go first. <laughs> and suddenly I realized all this time I thought she was pissed. She was just waiting for me to come back. She wasn't angry. And I thought I could have done this a long time ago. And we shared, we did our admiration and appreciation. It broke all the anxiety. And we had a wonderful evening together and went to sleep. Isn't that awesome? And now a word from our prophetess. <laughs> you know, um, recently I've been through some emotionally and just, just difficult season personally. Um, and... Every time I ask the Lord, God, why? Why are you letting this pain, like, come on, physical pain, 
You guys could pray for me. I have arthritis. I'm too young, right, to have arthritis. I couldn't run anymore. And, you know, emotionally, my you know, brain was going out of whack. I'm going through perimenopause. Uh, the hormones are going crazy. But every time I ask, all I experience is pain, right? Physical pain, emotional pain. Every time I ask, God, why? And every time he would respond, Sonny, this pain is my gift to you. It's my gift to you. And I was like, what? But God, it feels like a curse. This pain does, does not feel like a gift. It feels like a curse. And so I remember praying, God, help me to experience this gift, this pain as a gift. Help me to experientially experience this pain as a gift. And as I started to pray, right, and God started to, like, lead me step by step. And, and I mean, I'm not going to go through everything that God had walked me through. And I realized, wow, what a gift. This pain opened my heart up so that I would, I would uh, face the lies that I've been living with all my life, you know, so that I would mature, so that I would really receive the gift that God had for me in my relationship with Benjamin, in physically, in so many ways. It was such a gift. And so what I wanted to end tonight with is this. More than anybody on earth, your spouse will cause you more pain than anybody, right? More than your enemy, your spouse will cause you more pain. Remember my friend, she's a marriage family therapist, and um, she recently said that, you know, growing up she was so poor in Korea, and like even in schools, like the, the teachers would like make her stand up and like shame her publicly. When are you going to pay? You know, like really... Like, she went through so much shame in Korea growing up. And then she said this. That's, that was really hard. I, I starved. I was hungry. I was shamed publicly. But that pain was nothing compared to pain my husband <laughs> caused me. Right? And often when we experience pain, what do we do? We blame the very person that is gift to us. And oftentimes... We treat our spouse as a curse rather than a gift. Just like Benjamin said earlier, my withered side, you know, my subconscious mind needed somebody to help me to deal with this unresolved childhood issues, right? My father left me when we were 10 for another woman. And my father demanded that my mom would get an abortion when she had me because he didn't want another girl. My father never hugged me, never showed me affection. Even before their divorce, he, everybody made sure to let this little girl know that my father did not want me. And so growing up, my, that unmet need is, can, can a daddy, a father figure, can somebody love me, right? So... Believe it or not, before Benjamin, I was always attracted to older men. Men that are older, that are like, that are like fatherly. Oh, did you eat, Sonny? That was the best thing a man could ask. Oh, did you, did, did you eat? Why? Because I'm the fourth out of five, 
And often they forgot to feed me. And often I went to school without any lunch, right? So I remember, like, for weeks I had no food to eat, right? So I'm just this neglected child that nobody saw, right? And so when I met my husband, see, he, he tricked me, right? <laughs> he, he, he acted, he, like, publicly, he was this most confident, you know, he could, he could preach anywhere, he would prophesy, and people would get slain, and, you know, he, this confident man, right? So like, I need, I need, love me, feed me, show me love, accept me, don't leave me. And you know what? When I was dating him, I felt safe. Before Benjamin, I was the motherly type. If you were hungry, I fed you. If I heard anybody being hungry, I'll spend my last penny to feed you. All my friends came over to my apartment. That's where my friends hung out. I was the, 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 the motherly type. If all my friends' birthday, sure. Even if I just met you, if I knew it was your birthday, I would buy you a gift. Because I want you to know. I see you. You're important, right? So I'm this loving person. And when I started, when we were friends, right? So he, very confident man. And we started dating. And he became this insecure little boy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need an insecure boy that needs affirmation from me. I need a father figure that accepts me, that feeds me, that shows me love. And so he just... It was like every day he was like emotionally stabbing me. Ow, causing me so much pain. And I was like, I don't understand. (laughs) And when God says pain is gift to us, the pain that he caused me, if we do it right and we remain in that good pain, the pain that he causes me heals me, matures me. It, it, it demands that I face my unresolved childhood wounds. Because if he was like a father figure, right, I wouldn't deal with. There's a woundedness deep inside God wants to open up and heal, right? And, and God gave us marriage as a gift where we are able to deal with the unresolved issues and and receive healing from unmet needs from the past marriage is discipleship come here we say i do marriage is not me going in front or let him go in front marriage is going side by side even though i want to run out because i can't stand your presence good pain is I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. And you know what? His pain causes me to really deal with my immaturity. You know what it's doing? We're walking towards Jesus. And at the end of your life and my life, when we stand before Jesus, we have the privilege. You have the privilege to present the bride of Jesus, to Jesus. Even though you cause me so much pain and I cause you so much pain, this pain is gift to us so that we could become like Jesus. 
And at the end, as we stand, you and I, with your spouse, as you stand before Jesus, you can say, Jesus, here's your bride. And I get to play a part in this life to make him the perfect bride to Jesus. And in this life, he has the privilege of making me the bride that is presentable to Jesus. And that happens not through pleasure, but it happens through pain, through pain. So this is what I want us to do. I want you to face each other, husband and wives. And you know what? I don't care how godly you are. I mean, Jeannie said, wow, I can't imagine this godly man and godly woman in the one household. Fire? Yeah, not a good fire. <laughs> when, when you sound like, that's right, but not a good one. <laughs> Some, sometimes she wants to give me to Jesus early. <laughs> <laughs> Take him, Jesus. Take him, Lord. <laughs> you know what? All of us. He caused me so much pain, guys. Sometimes I feel like, I think I'll be better off without you. <laughs> we hold, <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> we hold this pain that our spouse caused deep inside. And every time the pain is triggered, we bring it out. But then along with the pain that he caused me, you know what the root is? My father's rejection of me. And so he caused me pain. I hold it in. And when my pain is triggered, I bring my father and him all out. Now, tonight, I want you to look at your spouse and if, as the Holy Spirit, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to release you to do this. As the Holy Spirit leads, I want you to uh, maybe acknowledge, wow, I think I caused you this, this kind of pain. Maybe, uh, maybe because we know each other's story already, right? You could kind of, oh, I think what I do Maybe not calling you when you ask me to call. Maybe that causes you more pain because of what happened in your childhood, right? If you're able to see those things, just talking it out. And if you are not there, that's okay. Because this weekend, we're going to help you get there, right? If you're not there, maybe you could explain. You know what, honey? When you just scream at me, and I know oftentimes you don't mean anything as much as what I think you mean by it. But when you scream at me, I become that little child in front of my mother or father that yelled at me. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if I think number one, if you are able to recognize how you cause your spouse pain, do that. But if you're not there, that's okay. Then tell your, help your spouse understand why what you do causes me so much pain, right? So we're going to first discuss the pain that we cause each other, right? And I know sometimes it's like if they're not as enthusiastic as you, like that also triggers your pain, right? And 
and you want to stonewall and forget it, right? So I just declare over you no hardness of hearts as we share in Jesus' name, right? You're going to just share about pain that you're experiencing in this marriage. What you think you're causing, or you could say what you're doing is causing me this pain, right? And uh, I'm giving you a command, right? You're not going to fight tonight, okay? We're going to, but if you feel something, we're going to deal with it this weekend, okay? We're not going to just, just make you drown anyway. But this is uh, the step one in talking about pain, okay? Now, I want you to, uh, maybe I'll give, how much? Oh, we don't have that much time. Maybe, I don't know, six minutes, three minutes each. Like, share, right? And then I'll come back and I'll, we'll, you know, we'll spend some time praying. Is that okay? We started late, so we could end a little bit late, yeah? Right? Okay. Yeah. So let me pray. Let me pray over you. Father, I thank you that you are here in our midst. That when you see each one of us, God, you see your child whom you love so much. And because you knew exactly what your child needed, you hand-picked the spouse for your child. You have gifted everyone in here with each other. And oftentimes, Lord, we repent because we have not treated your gift as a gift. But we have blamed the gift that you've given us as the one that have caused us pain. So tonight I pray that you would help us to open up, that you would give us wisdom to see how we have caused our spouse pain. And if they're not able to see it, can you give us, Holy Spirit, confidence in you to express, to communicate what they do that is painful to us, Lord? I pray that you will store up the pond. Your marriage is like a pond. And you know what? On the bottom, there's some garbage. God wants to stir it up tonight and let it arise. But when it, when it does arise, do not fear. Every time God stirs something up, he stirs it up to cleanse that pond. So, Father, give us faith, give us wisdom, give us courage to be fully who we are to fully open up and share we ask in jesus name amen all right talk to each other